Our sermon text this evening is Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 32, 24 through 32 to the end of the chapter. It's been several weeks since we've been in Romans, so I'd like us to begin at verse 18. So Romans 1, again the sermon text is verses 24 through 32, I'll begin reading at verse 18, please stand. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women And were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Please be seated. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, as we always pray that you would give us ears to hear, we ask that you would help us to open our hearts to the truth of this word and what we must believe and accept and also what we must practice and do. And we pray, Father, that you would help us in in all these things. Help us to humble ourselves. Then these are not things that we can absorb or do in our own strength. We are dependent upon your spirit. And so we ask for such help this evening. We also pray that you give us the right frame of mind to receive these words, to hear them for the truth, the sobering truth, especially as they stand in such contrast to the times in which we live. And yet we're reminded these words were written so long ago 
words that have always been relevant and always been true. Help us then, Father, to receive them. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's our normal course of action as parents that when our children ask for something that we know will hurt them, that will injure them, something that will be bad, we say no. But there are those unusual occasions when they ask for something and it's not really going to harm them, but perhaps it's important to make a point. And I remember making this point once when one of my children, we were at a restaurant with the wider family. We're at a steak restaurant that's important for the context. And one of my children decided they wanted to have fish. It was one of my children. I don't think it ever had fish. And for some reason, it just struck this child as a romantic opportunity to, to try fish. I tried to persuade them. Otherwise, we're at a steak restaurant, not a fish restaurant. I know fish is on the menu. But that's because they don't know better. And so I could not dissuade them. And so this child ordered fish. Lo and behold, the meal was served. Took one bite, came around the table to me and whispered in my ear, I don't like it. <laughs> and I informed them, this is what you ordered, this is what you're going to have. But it was very amusing. About five minutes later, I heard this child calling out to one of their cousins, Christine, would you like to try some fish? It's so good. <laughs> uh, he was not successful. But uh, he did get some bites from his father. That's kind of an innocent example, but there are those times perhaps when it's instructive um, to give our children something they know they, they don't want. It's not really what they want in their heart, but it might be important for them to learn a lesson. And as we'll see later, this is something God does to us as Christians. But a manner of speaking, it's what he does to those who do not love him as well. That's what our text is about. And you can see this refrain that is the title of this sermon, God Gave Them Up. It's, it's a phrase that appears three times in our passage, and that is going to form the framework for our work this evening. Verses 24, 26, and 28, you see that phrase, God Gave Them Up, and that is a heading for each of these, these sections. So you can see verses 24 and 25, it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. This is a conclusion based upon what we saw in the previous passage in verses 18 through 23. Uh, that sinful man sees God's truth. He sees his revelation, but he suppresses it unrighteously. And then what he does is he exchanges uh, that, that worship of God, which creation calls out from the do, by worshiping images, idolatry. And our passage is reaching a conclusion, a threefold conclusion, based upon what verses 18 through 23 are saying. That therefore, in light of that, God gave them up. That's the refrain, 24, 26, and 28. God gave them up or handed them over, delivered them over. Translations have this differently. They all mean the same thing. And it's something we see in the Old Testament. When Israel would disobey her God, that God would, would hand them over to their enemies. That's a cycle you see repeated in the book of Judges, for instance. And so you get to the cycle of Gideon. And it begins this way in chapter 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, namely idolatry. And the Lord gave them over to the hand of Midian for seven years. And this is exactly the same idea that we see in our passage. It says God gives them over to impurity, namely to the dishonoring of their bodies. It's talking about those sins that involve our bodies. Now, he's going to return to that in a little bit here. But first, we need to make a really important point. Why does he do this? What is the reason? And right away, he tells us in verse 25, it's because they exchanged the truth 
about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. In other words, verse 24, God gave them over to impurity. Why? Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. That is exactly the same logic we had in verse 23. He's repeating the same point. They exchanged the knowledge and the glory of God for the foolishness of idolatry, making images of men and creatures. We could put it this way. If it is true to say that humanity's fundamental task, most fundamental task, is to glorify God. Right? That's our chief end, right? That's what a catechism says. To glorify God, to worship him, to honor him. Then that means that our fundamental sin is failing to worship him and honor him and glorify him. In other words, idolatry is the root problem. Not sexual sin. Idolatry is the root problem. It's false worship. That's the cause, not, not the consequence. And we have to read the text that way because the fundamental truth of the universe is that the creator exists and he exists to be worshipped and served and loved. When we read that God is going to send Israel into Canaan and he says he's going to remove those seven nations of Canaan, why does he say he does that? It's so that Israel will not intermarry with those nations and fall into idolatry. And that's a constant warning you see throughout the Old Testament. Do not intermarry with the nations around you, lest they lead you into idolatry. This is the problem. And so what he's saying is that when man turns to idolatry, God turns man over to immorality. And in one sense, this is a judgment of God against those who exchange the truth of God for a lie. Remember how this opened in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed. It's being poured out in some way. And this is one of the ways in which it's being revealed. Mankind has insulted God, taking his truth and turning it against God. He's offended God by giving worship to another. He's stolen from God by robbing his, his glory and his honor from him. And so in this passage, what we could say is, if we could paraphrase it, and this is a paraphrase, God is saying something like this. This is what you want? Fine. I'll give it to you. And you can pursue the madness and the degradation of sin. This is what you want, but it's going to, to ruin you. It's all because they gave themselves over to spiritual impurity and God gives them over to sexual impurity. They abandoned God, so God abandoned them to their own desires, to what they want. He says exactly the same thing in verses 26 and 27. God gave them up. But now he entitles it to, to dishonorable passions. And what he's describing in a very subtle way is how man's sin, how man's sin is descending. That impurity of lust is growing to dishonorable lust. And he illustrates it this way, that natural relations are descending to unnatural relations. But God designed for, for male and for female is becoming reversed. It's being turned on its, on its head. And it's striking that he, he signals out male and female, that he says that explicitly. He's referring to the creation count, which isn't simply say that God created mankind. It's not what it says. It says he created man, but he made them male and female. And it's setting up their purpose and why he created them. And he's, he's using that exact language to make this point, to underline it. And to point out that homosexuality is an example of the indecency 
of man's sin. And he's making a parallel point here by singling out this to sin, by this sin. He says, what idolatry is to spiritual communion with God, homosexuality is to physical intimacy with one another. There's a parallel here. Just as idolatry is, is a violation, it's a perversion of what is natural, so also is homosexuality. And so he's making this parallel case or they exchange the truth of God for lies. So God hands them over to exchange natural relations for unnatural ones. They abandon the knowledge of God. And so God hands them over to abandon the decency, decency for indecency. These are people who want God in their world. And God says, yeah, you can live now in a world where there is no restraint. What's interesting is how he concludes. He says they receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. The due penalty here is telling us there's a sense of justice in this. I think on two levels. First of all, they purposely close their eyes to the light of God's truth. And they deliberately turn their thoughts from God towards what they desire. This is deliberate choice. This is purposeful. It's, it's intentional. So in that sense, there's a justice in it. But secondly, what he's saying and this is a, a crucial thought. This is found in the Old Testament as well, that their desire is their punishment. In other words, this, this descent into deeper corruption is sin's retribution. There's, there's a penalty in itself. There's something egregious in itself that the sin intensifies and it aggravates itself because God's not restraining it. He is delivering them over. So there's no restraint here. God's abandoning them to what they want. And so they reap what they sow but they reap to destruction. It's a terrible thing to read of what's happening by their choice. And thirdly, he talks about being given over to disgrace in verses 28 to 32. Look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, again, there's a kind of another way of talking about glorifying God or worshiping God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. <coughs> so dishonorable lusts give way to disgraceful lusts. And to depraved thinking. In other words, they're not checking those reckless desires. And so their hearts become hardened. And now there's no room for a God in their mind. And so God gives them over to an unfit mind. And what he's saying in these final, past, these final verses here is that now they are thinking the unthinkable, which is encouraging them to do the inconceivable. And so now he opens it up to a whole list of sins that illustrate the depth and the, and the comprehensive spread of, of the depravity of their hearts. Their hearts are filled, like it says, with unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice. That's an expression of total depravity. It's, it's everywhere. Their callousness is brought out by the words that they're heartless and ruthless. They're unconcerned about a ruptured home. They're disobedient to their parents. They're willing to destroy the reputations of others as gossips and as slanderers, and more than that, they're willing to destroy others because they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. And they're stubborn and arrogant. It says, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, and, and foolish. And what he's saying here is that the desires, these are totally unrestrained desires. This is wanton desire. There's, there's no control, no breaks on what they want. And in verse 32, it says it goes this far that they know that such wickedness deserves death. And yet they applaud others who practice these things. There's something 
truly depraved about this. It's not enough for a person to be damned themselves, to have to drag others down with them. They know the judgment of God, of God looms over such things, and yet they're cheering people on to their own ruin. There's something sick about that. A person who delights in seeing other people destroy their lives. Who's that describing? That's the devil. And so we come to the, to the climax of this, of God handing them over to ever-increasing, ever-deepening, ever-intensifying and aggravating sins and desire for sin. And now all dissipation and all the dissipation it brings. But this is what they want. And it's what they will get forever if they do not repent and do not trust in Christ. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. The lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded. And that's illustrated so well in his book, The Great Divorce. Every person there making their case for what they want. This is what I demand. And so the summary of this is that the lost, lost humanity exchanges the truth and the worship of God with the lie of idolatry. That is our problem. And so God gives humanity over to what we want and to our destruction. And that's why we pray that God would rescue those that we love from what they want. And we do so with compassion because we know what you and I would become if God was not there with his abounding mercy to rescue us. That's what causes us to pray. I think there's two questions that are raised as we consider a text like this that's just so clear. And one question we could ask ourselves is this. Does God do this to us as Christians? Is this how he treats us? This is why we read that section of the Confession of Faith. I think it's one of the real gems of our confession. There's nothing else like it in any reform symbol, in my opinion, in chapter 5. And these two paragraphs back to back and how God deals with us in our sin. And then on occasion, he gives us just a taste of what we think we want. In a very measured way, it says for a season, for a short time, it says you are insistent, this is what you want, I'm going to give you just a little bit of taste. But why does he do that for us? The confession says it's to soften our heart. It says that God may leave that child of God to, to their temptations and the corruptions of their heart for a time in order to do a host of things to bring about greater sanctification. First of all, to chastise us for our sin. Hebrews 12 brings this out. Or to show us the corruption of our hearts and to show us the presence and the power of a particular sin in our life. Or perhaps he does it to humble us, to make us more dependent upon him for his love or to, to go to him more earnestly, perhaps more often for prayer, in prayer to seek his help. Or perhaps he does it to, to make us more watchful and wiser, more humble against those future occasions when that temptation comes and that sin. Malady is a tremendous medicine. For the Christian, and God does all these things, but why does He does it? Do it. He does it to soften our heart. And yet, in paragraph six, he says, God gives those very same things to a non-Christian. And what impact does it have upon them? It further hardens her heart. God can give the very same 
form of cancer to a non-Christian. It only makes them raise their fist and clench their fist all the more tighter and say, this is the reason I hate you. And then I can tell you the testimony of a man who was dying from cancer. The tumors in his bones were beginning to burst and break his bones. He was in tremendous agony and pain. And one of his friends says, I just wish I had a magic wand. I could wipe away cancer from the world. And this person said, I know what you mean. But if it wasn't for cancer, there'd be a lot less people in heaven. God gives two people exactly the same thing. And the one that hardens their heart and the other one that softens their heart and makes them beautiful. And that's what our confession is teaching us, that God has his purposes and he allows us these small tastes and just in the right measure at the right time, the right way to show you this is not what you want and to soften your heart against him, even though with the unbeliever it would harden him. And because there's two contrasting purposes with the unbeliever, God is letting them go. But with you as a Christian, God is saying, I refuse to let you go. His promise is that he will never abandon us to our sin. He will never leave us to sin's full consequences. God lets us on occasion see the presence of sin in our hearts, but he never gives us over to the full power of sin. In those weak moments, you and I have shameful and impure desires that seem so strong to us, but God promises he will not allow it to run its full course. He will not allow our hearts to run away with his desires. John Owen in the book Mortification of Sin puts it so powerfully. He puts it this way. He says, every thought of lust would commit adultery if it could. Every thought of envy would steal if it could. Every angry thought would destroy another person if it could. But God restrains. He does not allow it. He holds us back. He shields us and he protects us. And as you grow as a Christian, you realize the thing that God is protecting me from the most is myself. That's why his grace comes in refusals. I think again of the promise in 1 Corinthians 10 that God is faithful. He's faithful. He will not abandon us to be tempted beyond our ability. He provides either endurance or escape. He will not give us over to a depraved mind. He will not give us over to these delusions that we embrace in those secret thoughts. He will not give us over to hard hearts. And the reason why is because he knows that these are the things that we do not want. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And he knows this. But why is this the case? Why does God not give us up to our sin? Why does he not give us over to suffer the full consequences of our sin? It's very simple. It's because of Christ. The Christ was given over for our sin. Christ was delivered up as our substitute. The word that's used here three times in verses 24, 26, and 28 is used frequently of Christ in the gospel accounts as he approaches his suffering. It's the very same word. Jesus spoke of his suffering in Luke 18. He said that he would be given over to the Gentiles to be mocked and insulted, spit upon, flogged, and killed. He knew Judas was his betrayer. And he knew that Judas was watching for the opportunity to do what? To give him up. He says in Matthew 26, truly, I say to you, one of you will give me up. It's the word for betray. He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me 
will give me up. In the garden, when the crowd comes in Matthew 26, Christ says, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is given up into the hands of sinners. Rise, the one who gives me up is at hand. And in Matthew 27, it says, they bound him and led him away and gave him up to Pilate. And in verse 18 of Matthew 27, it says, Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they gave him up to him. And in verse 26, Pilate released Barabbas, but he gave Jesus up to be crucified. You think of the cross. It's Jesus suffering the consequences of our sin to the fullest extent, all the sin and the punishment that we deserved. If you want to know what the righteous wrath of God looks like as it punishes sin, you just look at the cross and you see how Christ suffered all of our sin and its curse and its misery and its condemnation. As Romans 4.25 says, that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses. And we look at the cross where Jesus suffered for, for you and me and the consequences of our sin. And we read there in his death that he received the sour wine. And he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is Christ giving up his life for us. And the most amazing thing of all, as we think of all of this in the, in the gospel, it's this, that this is what he wanted. This is what he agreed to in the covenant of redemption before the creation of the world from all eternity. This is what he wanted. That in a sense, we could say the father gave Jesus what he wanted. He wanted to suffer and to die for us so that he could save us. And he did that because he loved us. Galatians 2.20 says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or Ephesians 5.2, that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. If Christ is willing to do that for you, do you really think he's going to walk away from you now? Do you think he's going to abandon you now? Do you think he's just simply going to hand you over to Satan? Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things. Christ will not abandon you. He will not let you go. He will not give you up to sin because he knows what you want and you want to see him. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for the promises of your word that nothing in all creation can separate from the love of God in Christ Jesus, including our sin. Remember the words of one of our forefathers in the faith that there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Oh, Father, we desperately need the gospel. And we need it to be true. Even as we read this passage this evening of living in a lost and broken world where people are so blind and so lost. And they think they know what they want. But what they want will ruin them. Father, give us hearts of compassion as we speak to them about Christ, as we pray for them, as we intercede for them. Give us such hearts because we know what we deserve. 
But we thank you that in the gospel, you're not given to us what we deserve. You give to us what we need, what we so desperately need, the grace of God in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.